very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to all parts of tonight's interview and all of our material, you know what to do. Just go to VeritasRadio.com, click on the subscribe button, and immediately you will receive your login. You will have access to all our seasons, starting from December of 2008 and all our future interviews. So, stop delaying. Give yourself the gift of truth. And tonight we discuss ufology from an anthropological and evolutionary perspective with our special guest, Jordan Hofer, author of the book Evolutionary Ufology, right now on Veritas. Jordan Hofer is a former university instructor of human evolution and serves as a mutual UFO network MUFON research specialist in anthropology. He is also an author and has written a book titled Evolutionary Ufology, which is tonight's focus on his theories of the evolution of extraterrestrials and what he believes their motivations may be for abducting people. He has also recently written a young adult fiction novel titled Saucerville, that incorporates famous UFO and abduction cases and his theories on alien activity. His website is linked at veritasradio.com. And directly from Salem, I believe, Salem, Oregon, I'm privileged to welcome Jordan Hofer to Veritas. Hello, Jordan, and welcome. Hello, Mel. Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. And as I was telling you offline, the book, bit unorthodox, bit non-traditional, I've read dozens and dozens of books, but I don't think anybody has taken taken the time and, and the resources to look at the evolutionary perspective on more of a Darwinian method. Is that what you tried to accomplish? Absolutely. Yeah. That was that was at the heart of the book. And what motive well, first of all, you came from academia. I always have a, it's a treat for me whenever I have somebody who comes from academia knowing that <laughs> let, let me just put it this way. You know, you're not allowed to discuss the paranormal. People lose their jobs for talking crazy talk. But something happened in, correct me if I'm wrong, something happened in late January 2007. The the, the challenge you'll, you're, it challenged your worldview and, and, and your straight scientific interpretation of the natural universe. Let's start from there. What happened? Yeah, it sure did. Um, my best friend... I've been friends with him now for like, oh gosh, over over 35 years. 
And uh, one night... Uh, oh, please, can you, re- you repeat that? For some reason, I didn't get the last 10 seconds. Oh, sure, sure. Um, uh, my friend of uh, about 35 years saw a triangular UFO, a black triangular UFO, that uh, flew low over his house. And it was so low that it actually was like rattling the windows and so forth. And he got a good, you know, a really good look at this thing. It wasn't like, you know, some, uh, you know, just some shiny lights off in the distance or something. I mean, he really got a good look at it. And uh, at first, you know, like you said, that happened in 2007. I was still in academia. And so I kind of wrote it off. You know, and which which is a terrible thing for a best friend to do, and it was it wasn't until I got out of academia in 2009 that I realized, you know, gosh, I should have listened to him. I should, you know, it felt kind of like I'd betrayed him in a way, and uh, so I did listen to him and I did read the report and everything, and it's uh, that's 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 what turned me around. Um, being out of academia can really open your mind can really open your mind. <laughs> That's what everybody tells me. There's so much a, bi- a big world out there. So your closest friend, your dad and your daughter, had all witness UFOs. How could you not believe them? How, could, how would you feel if he had seen a UFO and they did not believe you? I would feel utterly betrayed. I would want the people that I know the most the best to uh, believe me, <laughs> you know, if I actually saw such a thing. Um, yeah. So due to budget cuts, uh, you are laid off from your university teaching job. Your, uh, you know, your, your world changed drastically and, and you wanted to know what you were dealing with. Right. You know, from a condescending skeptic, and that's a good term, to committed researcher, you join MUFON, and everybody who's listening to us know about MUFON. And on the second segment, I'd like to discuss a bit of MUFON and, and uh, Bob Bigelow's relationship with, with the entity and so on, but we leave that for later. You join MUFON, and you became a research uh, specialist. By the way, hello to, to my friend Keith from MUFON, Oregon, very good man. I know he works with you. And you became a research specialist in anthropology. Now, that's a big leap from university to jump into MUFON. Now, tell me about that transition. That, as I said before, that transition um, was really brought about by not being in the academic world. And, you know, as soon as I was out of there, I realized that I had a lot of stuff knocking around in my head, including my friend's sighting. And uh, I, I, I was able to to take a look at ufology from a different point of view, because I'd been, you know, studying and teaching human evolution for years, and uh, I, I thought I thought it might be best just to, you know, start there from what I knew and attempting to use that to uh, figure out some stuff in ufology. And you say you do not believe in UFOs; you, you accept their physical existence in natural reality. Beautiful heart, real. How do you reconcile your newfound knowledge with your background in science and, and academia? Oh, well, that's that, that's really easy. Uh, for one thing, academia simply just doesn't even deal with this kind of thing. Um, what 
what I did moving from an academic to a more ufology point of view is I read a lot of books, a lot of books on ufology. And I found some specific cases that I thought were pretty much just totally believable. And uh, some some authors, too, who I think are totally legit. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a change where my mind was really allowed to be opened up. And I was also on kind of a mission to try to figure out, you know, what, what the heck is going on? What did my friends see? And, and, and so forth. Now, I'm a little confused because I know a lot of these events happened 2007 and so on, but you had your own sighting at 7.30 p.m. on December the 1st, 2001. What happened between 2001 and 2007 that you were still a skeptic? Oh, um, uh, that's that's easy. I was I was in academia. Oh, so uh, by by force? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you, yeah. I mean, like you said, you do not talk about stuff like that in academia. They call it crazy talk. You know, they even did it to John Mack. They called him Macko Wacko. Yeah. Uh, you know, which has no respect. Um, so yeah, it's, like I said, as soon as I got out of it, I was just able to uh, open my mind and start asking some questions that I'd never been able to do before. Wasn't there a professor within your institution that devoted, especially you're in Oregon, it's a Bigfoot country to many people. It was a professor who spent, what, maybe 5% of the time, wasn't he a professor in anthropology? So studying this could have been, you know, useful to the institution. And he devoted, what, about 5% of the time. Was he let go? Uh, okay, you're talking about Professor Grover Krantz, who taught. I think so. Uh, yeah, he taught at Western Washington, and um, he wasn't let go. But his entire life, he's, he, he he passed on a few years back. His entire life, um, I mean, he was he was an incredible scientist. He wrote great books about Neanderthal, uh, about the uh, evolution of Homo erectus, and so on. And yeah, he spent 5% of his time studying Bigfoot using the tools of uh, physical anthropology. And uh, for that, he, his, his career was harmed severely. He, he was denied tenure. Uh, he was not able to move up the ladder. And uh, yeah, he was basically treated... Um, um, he was basically treated like uh, more like a more or less like a kind of, kind of an embarrassment, really. But uh, I, I knew people who knew Grover Krantz personally, and they said he was not only a fantastic teacher; um, he was a, he was a brilliant evolutionist and a really nice guy. So yeah, when I when I hear stuff being said about him that's bad, it kind of ticks me off. <laughs> well, that only happened. That not only happens to people who looked into Bigfoot or UFOs, but you know anybody who works in the medical research uh, universities, if they find something that could revolutionize or find a cure, you know what happens to them in energy, in, in the medical industry, uh, you name it. Um, you know, I'm thinking of some other professors that worked in academia who were also let go or they were shunned or became persona non grata. Why is it? Why is academia so close-minded in some ways, and they pretend to be so open-minded in other ways? Uh, my okay. My my true opinion is it's it's politics and career climbing. 
I think that, I think that's the answer. What about receiving grants? Because a lot of well, the grants. Yeah. Go ahead. Exactly. That, there's there's that too. I mean, there, there's there's right think and there's wrong think in academia. Well, Bigfoot. I mean, how can that be detrimental <laughs> to any? To any research, I can understand, look, UFOs, if you're researching right. UFOs and all of a sudden you come in contact with with a craft and you realize, wait a second, you know, what are we doing flying this tin cans for the last 100 years when we could actually have anti-gravity propulsion here with electromagnetism and so on and so forth? That could be detrimental to the established authority. But Bigfoot, but what's the problem with Bigfoot? <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. I, To be honest with you, I used to teach Bigfoot, I would talk about Grover Krantz, and basically what I would tell the students is I, I, I would be giving them a warning. I say, you know, if you've got an imagination, just keep it to yourself if you want to succeed in academia. Um, Bigfoot, I think Bigfoot actually is good because it opens up uh, discussions about uh, um, older species of apes that have you know, now gone extinct, like the, the largest species ever, Gigantopithecus black eye, which went extinct about half a million years ago. And a lot of people think that, that that's Bigfoot. Well, you know, I mean, you know, whether or not you want to get into all about Bigfoot or whatever, it's still a good learning experience because, like I said, you can talk about other apes. So I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's a... There, there's a lot you can't talk about in academia, <laughs> a lot. Well, I'm, I'm thinking of two two persons now, Dr. Leo Sprinkle. You probably know who he is. Yeah. You know, he also, even when we did our interview a couple of years ago, he cried on the show because he really misses psychology. He was a professor for many years, and many people who were claiming to have been abducted by, let's say, extraterrestrials were coming to him. So on his private time, not even using, you know, college time, uh, he was trying to help. And, you know, he was more or less let go for that reason. Then I'm thinking also of uh, not a an, uh, somebody from academia, but David Politis. You probably know who he is. Uh, Missing 411, the books. Thousands of people are lost every single year yes. from national parks. And it's it's unfathomable to me that the national parks or the Bureau of, uh, of, 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 the, of Interior does not have a database to continue tracking the missing. I mean, imagine if you lose, I know you're a parent, I'm a parent too, if you lose one of our children and they don't have them on a list somewhere, who's going to be looking for them? So this is why I bring Bigfoot. I'm not a, a big uh, researcher when it comes to, to Bigfoot. As a matter of fact, I, I hardly even discuss it. But, you know, when it comes to missing people and and in your your background in anthropology do you think that bigfoot may be a reality after all well you know i i it, it's i I'll, I'll never say it's impossible <clears throat> what I, what i can tell you is that there is no fossil record of apes evolving in the americas none zero uh, according to the fossil record, apes have never been here. The, the first apes to arrive here were us. <laughs> um, so, where was I going with that? I apologize. No, that's okay. I mean, we're just talking, discussing Bigfoot. How did how did he come here? If we were the first apes to come here, 
Yeah, see, it would have had to have, you know, come here sometime prior to half a million years ago. And if it had, you know, come from Asia half a million years ago or whatever, we we would certainly see uh, fossils somewhere of this thing. And that's 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 my position. I mean, I I, I can also be very open minded and say, well, you know, maybe they're really really intelligent cryptids that uh, hide their remains. I don't, you know, it's a possibility. Your daughter, your dad, your best friend. Tell me about your daughter. What does she see? Well, the first one that she saw was a red rectangle, and it was it was heading south. And uh, she, she saw it go behind a tree, and then it disappeared completely. She said that it, she couldn't see it behind the branches, and uh, when, where it would have come out the other side, where she would have seen it, it didn't. Um, so yeah, we had uh, we had Keith uh, come on down to Salem, and he, he uh, went through the case with her, and uh, it was an unknown. You know, I've I've read about other. Uh, big red rectangles, so they're out there. That was her first sighting. She had another sighting about uh, a few months ago of a red object moving uh, very quickly from, I believe, the, uh, let's see, that would be from the south to the north. Um, and uh, anyway, Keith Rowell looked into that, too, and, and, and from what he could tell, again, it was another unknown. So uh, I, I have all these people around me having sightings, but I don't. I haven't had one. I've never seen anything. Well, I was like you for for all my life. I've been interested in the topic. I grew up in in the Caribbean, so they call it one of the corners of the Bermuda Triangle. So to me, always fascinated me living in there in the seventies and and hearing of all the UFO waves and and looking at a TV commercial one night where they were filming a rum commercial on the tallest building in Puerto Rico, and they left that camera on all night to make it like a 10-second commercial, you know, looking at the sun rising. And throughout the night, they had this light standing there that came, was going to the right and immediately turned left, and boom. And it was very close to my hometown, and I thought, oh, my goodness, this, is, this thing is flying above, above my head. So that's what opened to me, but I never saw a UFO probably until 2000. And, 10 or 11 when I went to the East 80 Ranch, and that's when I I can say I saw my very first one confirmed, and then I saw multiple ones in that same area. But my apologies, I'm looking at the book, page 17. I guess I read the page without noticing that what I was referring to, 7.30 p.m. December 1st, 2001, was a retired police officer in Australia. That's oh, one, of right. the story that you, one of the stories that you included in the book. But speaking of your daughter... We know as parents if our children are lying to us, and you have this this instinct. I mean, somebody who like you let's let's call you a, an open minded skeptic. How do you feel? I mean, that she was not lying because my conversation with Whitley Strieber it was mm-hmm. it, it was scary. What he and I discussed. I even have that on on a an audio clip on a preview that he says when you see a gray coming to your home. And you cannot even move. And you see them taking your children away and there's nothing you can do about it. That's when you'll know the, the, the reality of the grace. Now, what do you say about that? I say that's terrifying. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'll, I'll be completely honest. Uh, I, I, I didn't even make it through. 
Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.